Elvis, 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 Hello, and welcome to Elvis Has Left the Movies, a podcast dedicated to the cinematic legacy of Mr. Elvis Aaron Presley. We're journeying through all 31 of his feature films. We're talking about the man, we're talking about the music, we're talking about all kinds of things. I'm Matt, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Morgan. Hello, everybody. It's Morgan. You know who I am by this point. Um, Also, I'm just tired of explaining myself, so strap in for today's wonderful Elvis Presley podcast episode where we watch G.I. Blues. Yes. My personal least favorite. I'm just kidding. It's not actually as bad as I think it is. It's just, I don't know, man. There's some things I got to talk about in this movie. It begins in earnest the Elvis movie formula. This is the one. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I just didn't like that there was a baby in this one. Yes. Like every time they brought the baby up, I was just like, oh my God, just let it end. Just let it end, you know? So I guess we'll get into that later. We will get into that. <laughs> uh, before we do, though. Yeah, what do we have from, do we have any notes from last week? There are some lingering things. And then if you'll indulge me, I'm going to go off on a thing. Yes. But no worries. We will get to Elvis once I'm done with all that shenanigans. <laughs> so we're going to get better at this of, of pointing out any alternate titles because this is, I keep getting the, the fan demand is strong. They really want us to talk more about the alternate titles. Yeah, that's what we really need to know about the alternate titles to Elvis movies, because that's where the real drama and mystery is. But King Creole has at least an interesting example in that it also pertains to a whole song that was recorded and then scrapped. So one of the alternate titles for King Creole was Sing You Sinners. That's not the song. I don't know what the heck that title is, but that was not used. Okay. But originally the movie, because it's based on the book A Stone for Danny Fisher, the movie was called Danny, and Elvis recorded a song called Danny and they had the whole thing done and then they like finished the production and they're like actually we're gonna call it King Creole so scrap the Danny song altogether that's bizarre yes and that song like the recording was just kind of put on a shelf yeah and then 20 years later they had a, an album come out called Elvis a legendary performer volume 3 1978 okay and that's when it first got an official release that's so bizarre so now you can look it up online Elvis Presley Danny and it's an interesting little ditty. It probably would be too, because you've got to consider you're releasing a song in 1978, but this song would have been written in the early 60s, I guess. In 58 or 57 when they were filming and doing the thing, yeah. Right. So that's a long time. So not only is it going to, it's it's going to sound odd when you release it at that time, just because of how different Lee, his sound changed over the years. Yeah. But that'll be interesting. I, I Like, I can imagine listening to that album would have been um, interesting is the word that I would use. Sure. Because, like, you're listening to, like, Motown Elvis. At that time, he had gotten into his Motown groove, right? And then all of a sudden, you have a 1958 little ditty for a guy called Danny. <laughs> That's interesting. And an extra little wrinkle is that the original lyricist who wrote the song ended up just changing the title to lonely blue boy and then conway twitty recorded it and it became like a hit for him i know that song yeah yeah so that's it's like the same music but it, the lyrics slightly changed but yeah that's danny interesting it's weird huh that is weird so if you want to win at like any elvis trivia, you want to throw out a deep cut <laughs> you tell him about danny yeah 
No one Jeez, will know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> okay, good. Wow. We got that out of the way. Yeah, by the time we're done with this podcast, Matt is going to be a bigger Elvis fan than I am. It's possible. <laughs> uh, so, GI Blues. Yes. Before we get to GI Blues, though, I'm actually going to talk about... Oh, we're still going. Yeah. Okay. That, that was just okay, the alternate hey, titles. More? I know, I know. Please, bear with me. I'm going to go full, like, imagine a cork board with a bunch of red string attached to pushpins. Okay. So we haven't brought this up before, but like, I want to talk about my passion for physical media release of movies briefly. Like specifically, I've built up a pretty substantial Blu-ray collection. I'm, I'm a proponent of putting stuff out on physical media. Right. And as it stands right now, as we record, only 11 out of the 31 Elvis movies are available on Blu-ray. Right. So like, get better people. <laughs> and th- that 11th one was just only recently announced. Just last week, they said that... Uh, it happened at the World's Fair was getting a release from Warner Archive. Oh, okay. And if you look globally, there's two movies additional to the 11. So there's 13 altogether, but you need to get like German region free Blu-rays for those two movies. Right. That's still not even halfway through his whole filmography. Yeah. And the Blu-ray release of King Creole was put out. It was a new sub-label of Paramount called Paramount Presents. So they were taking some of their archive titles and putting them out in some really nice packaging. It's actually a pretty legit Blu-ray. Very good job on them. And they're throwing in some extras if they can. And that was like a new 4K restoration. Like, you know, they're doing the works. Right. So I'm going to put it out there. Do the same thing for Blue Hawaii because that movie, although it's not like the greatest, the print for it, it's, it looks awful. It's Yeah. Also, Blue Hawaii is like a staple of Elvis. Like yeah. Blue Hawaii is like it's blue hawaii come on right how do you not how is that not one of the blu-rays that's already been made i'm actually surprised like what the heck gets made ahead of blue hawaii it might still happen so for the sake of collectors this whole series of paramount presents is all numbered on the spine and king creole was spine number two right they're up to spine 21 now okay and that newest release is almost famous starring this is her breakout role kate hudson who was in how to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, a movie which I said last time I hadn't watched. But guess what? In between recording these episodes, <laughs> I sat down and watched the film. Okay. Uh, it is just as... Wait, so wait, 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 yes. wait. I'm not following the rabbit hole. Sure. Paramount Presents released some movies. Uh-huh. And then they released some more movies. And one of those movies was How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days? No, it was the movie Almost Famous starring Kate Hudson in her breakout role. And she would then go on to star in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days with Matthew McConaughey. Right. Which is just as like, it's like, it's been pointed out as like, this is the point. This is 2003, this rom-com comes out. And this is when it pretty much sets the tone for like rom-coms for the rest of the 2000s. Like the effort they're going to put in them. Yeah, pretty much. Just like how G.I. Blues sets the template for Elvis movies and his kind of rom-coms that he's uh-huh. going to do. Okay. Yeah. Also, in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, the only reason we brought this up last time is because I said that Liliane Monavecchi was in it. And then you were like, well, who does she play? And then I was caught off guard. I will never have that happen again. You, you <laughs> She's in the movie for about 10 to 15 minutes near the end. She's delightful. As soon as she's on screen, she's like flirting with Matthew McConaughey's character because she plays yeah. 
the wife of the dude they're courting for his diamond company. She's Miss DeBauer. And so just just before people get too lost, sure. Lilian Montevecchi is a famous performer. French ballerina. Yeah, French ballerina. Yada, yada. cabaret dancer. And um, was the banana girl in King Creole. And she was also in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days with Matthew McConaughey. Yes. It was where her final theatrical release. I think she had like two other things afterwards. But okay. just, you know. A legend and she's in this movie yes she's a highlight of the movie because the movie otherwise is kind of just <laughs> and also another little thread that we can connect is that how to lose guys in 10 days and gi blues both are of the, the the classic setup that there's a bet that is made that's that sets the plot in motion ah uh, that is interesting so there's like some kind of huh. tissue there that all kind of like connects in, in the way okay. the legacy. I don't know what the first movie is that did that, but... That's pretty interesting. You heard it here first, folks. Matt is having a mental breakdown. Yes. Are you okay, man? I am. This is a lot. So, okay, so let me get... I just want to try and summarize this. We're done. This. It's over. We're, it's over? If anyone okay. wants to... We're not going to bother summarizing. If anyone wants to try to unpack all that, they can <laughs> do it at their own discretion. But I, I don't want to take up any more of our time. I just need to get it off my chest this is okay this is all right me at my purest this is what happens sometimes <laughs> yeah this is what happens when you leave matt alone for like a couple of hours with a dvd case jesus matt you're i mean it's amazing i will say it's amazing because sure. i just would never have ever thought to watch how to lose a guy in 10 days just to get this whole thing started well it was just so that i i watched it so i could i don't have to be like oh no i've never seen that even though <laughs> I don't regret it, but I, I could have also spent my time much more wisely. But hey, here we are. True, true. Yeah, true. Okay, so today we're talking about GI Blues. Let's talk about the movie. Do we want to talk about the movie or do we want to talk about Elvis in the military? Because we also need to... No, I want to talk about... I want to talk about both of those things at the same time. Sure. So let me start this off. Elvis drives a fucking tank in this movie. Yes. Okay. He's he's a little broom broom boy. And like I was watching GI Blues and I was taking pictures and sending them to friends. And I'm like, Elvis drives a tank in this movie. Elvis drives a tank in this movie. Only to find out like last week, Elvis drove a tank in real life. Yes. That's what he did in the military was drive a freaking tank. He was. Which I yes. think is really cool. The 1st Medium Tank Battalion, 32nd Armor, 3rd Armor Division in Friedberg, West Germany. That was his job title. That is just incredible. I want to drive a tank. It seems like a lot of fun. Elvis needs to be the next main character on Panzer Girl, Tank Girl, whatever the heck that is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've seen that anime with the tiny little girls and they're in the tank and they're like, sure. ooh, ooh, put the bullet in the, ooh, ooh, in the hole. How cool would it be if Elvis showed up and be like, thank you very much. Blast him. I would be very confused, but I'd probably be into it, I guess. You know, honestly, though, like historically, Elvis showing up and fighting a tank makes more sense than like six 11 year old girls in the bush blowing each other up with tanks. Like that makes more sense that Elvis would show up from beyond the grave. Yes. I can agree on that. So I, I just wanted to get that started. Elvis drives a goddamn tank in this movie. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the film happens. Sure. Like the first thing they show you, Elvis drives a tank in the movie. And then the film happens. So uh, I don't really need to know about the shenanigans that Elvis got up to in wartime. But if you want to tell people about it. I can just give you the highlights. Yeah. Give us the highlights. So he was drafted. And then there was that like short deferment so he could finish doing King Creole. Oh, yeah. That's right. There was actually a bunch of stuff that happened, right? Yeah. 
And at first it was like, oh, uh, maybe I should go in for the special services. So I'll just be like performing for the troops. Yeah. But then Colonel Tom Parker, as much as he's kind of a scumbag, he's also a fairly good promoter because he knew that the better move for Elvis for his image would be to join in as an actual regular civilian as a soldier yeah and do all the basic training era thing because then and it worked because everyone all those like grumpy parents that we talked about in the first few episodes yeah were like oh well now he's cleaning himself up he's being a, an upstanding american uh, young man and yeah and so he got he kept his bobby Soxer teen audience but then he also yeah got the parents in on him too and so that's true. I also just want to point out, is Blue Hawaii the film after... No, it's Flaming Star. I just want to start pointing out that after G.I. Blues, it seems like Elvis's role in his movies starts to shift, where he's no longer this sad boy. He, he is in Flaming Star, the movie after this one. Yes. Um, but that's because Flaming Star is a hot pile of flaming garbage, and we'll explain why later. But for the most part, in the rest of his movies, he's no longer the sullen you know emo boy who gets into fights with people he's the retired army vet older adult guy who gets into trouble with middle-aged women and punches dudes out in bars and stuff yes. he still fights for some fucking reason. james dean is gone and now he's like rock hudson yeah yeah that's exactly you got it except rock hudson was in so gay yes I mean, we're not entirely sure after what we've seen with Jailhouse Rock. You know, anything, <laughs> anything can happen. <laughs> yeah. We, we can't keep going back to that well, but okay. <laughs> okay, so so let's talk about the movie starts. The movie starts because Elvis and uh, his army boys, they, they set it off early that they are always kind of owing their, uh, I think their captain money. The Sarge, yeah. The Sarge needs money. Yeah. They owe him the money. Yeah, Sarge needs money because Elvis keeps borrowing money from Sarge to do stuff or whatever. And the band... Um, you may ask, how do they sing their way out of this one? Uh, Elvis's boys are his backup band and they go and sing in bars and stuff to try and make up a bit of extra cash. And while they're doing that, there's a fight and then they take up a bet about this chick who is like really frigid and will, won't let anyone spend the night in her apartment or whatever. So they bet Elvis and they're like, Elvis is like, yeah, I bet I can do it. And then... I don't know. Elvis is going to get shipped out to a different area. And he's like, so okay. he only has three days to do it. Sure. Almost. I mean, most of the elements are there. Yeah. Uh, we should bring up that his two boys are Cookie and Rick. And also he's Tulsa. He's Tulsa McLean. Yeah. Oh, my God. What a name. Tulsa McLean. I didn't catch his name in this movie. Tulsa McLean. That's amazing. How, how oh my does that rank? Is it still Deke Rivers on top, though? Deke Rivers is still on top. Like, Deke Rivers is so quintessentially an Elvis name simply because it isn't his name. Right. His it's name literally... is, like, it's something else. It's, like, Jim Bob. Jimmy Tompkins. Jimmy Tompkins. Yeah, Jimmy Tompkins, which is crazy. So Deke Rivers is still on top, but what did we say was the second one? It was from last week. Uh, oh, boy. Gosh, I can't remember now. Well, we did Danny Danny Fisher. I think it was Danny Fisher. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna put Danny Fisher below. Uh, it's gonna go Deke Rivers, Tulsa, whatever the heck. McLean. <laughs> Tulsa McLean, and then it's gonna be uh, King Creole boy Bobby. Danny Danny Fisher. Danny Bobby. <laughs> Danny Fisher. Yeah. yeah. Deke Rivers, Tulsa McLean, Danny Fisher. That's the order. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, and Clint Reno all the way lower than that. 
yeah, Clint Reno all, all the way at the bottom. Although his name in fuck in Flaming Star is also really bad. So um, I want to stop and talk about Cookie. I know we have a segment that we devote to side characters. Yes. But I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest that we scratch that this time because Cookie is the worst fucking side character that I have seen so far in one of these movies. I, he wasn't going to be the one I was going to point out because he's more of a lead. Yeah, he's he's kind of a lead, but I just hate his guts. He's such a weird, like, not all the time, but he, every now and then he's like a weird sniveling, like, ew, I just want to get in this girl's pants and I just got to get this done, Elvis. How come you can't understand? Ew. It's like, gross, you weirdo. Yes. Go, go home. God, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Sicko. <laughs> uh yeah i just wanted to point that out really quickly who's your side character uh oh boy well i'm gonna have a lot to say about uh tina i want to say that actress the the dancer no that that one is lily isn't she famous that actress for that dancer they're both they both have interesting we'll get to them when we we talk about the cast in general okay tina as in tina is like She's the one that that cookies the the roommate. Yes, the roommate. Right, got her. Yeah, um, got her. Just to jump back into the plot and God, do we have to? This plot has so many points and so little, like many intricate details. I know. I'm not gonna go through all of them. I just want to specify some of the things you already brought up because technically, yes, Elvis wasn't the the one who was part of the bet. What there was this soldier named Dynamite who's a real piece of shit. <laughs> Because he's name. the one who's like, he's literally a pimp. Like the the Sarge at one point is like, oh, do you have a date for me tonight? And then Dynamite's, oh, what do you want? A, a brunette, a, a blonde, a redhead? And he's like, oh, yeah. surprise me. And then he literally shows up with one lady of each. And he says, pick one. And then the Sarge's like, oh, I'll take the redhead. It's really, ugh. anyways. It's really weird. Um, This is when the boys are doing the performance. And of course, the redhead is completely just like glued to Elvis. And the Sarge's are like, oh, you're, you're on a date with me whatever man yeah <laughs> you suck yeah <laughs> and then the the fight breaks out because a soldier literally goes to the jukebox and puts on blue suede shoes by elvis presley it says it on the yeah while <laughs> so yeah my my brain's going what are we doing we're just completely throwing the rules out the universe doesn't exist we break the fourth wall i, I have noticed though i've noticed in almost every movie we've watched so far there is a callback to another elvis movie that's true. Or another Elvis something or other. Even um, like uh, there's a we'll talk about it later because I think it's in Flaming Star because Flaming Star has a lot more going on. But there's a lot of moving points in this movie that there doesn't need to be. There really doesn't need to be. The, the gist of it is that Elvis takes on a bet. Yes. It doesn't matter who says what or why because it's just it just doesn't need to matter. And they add in this extra character, Tina, this bartender character, to like keep the plot stirring and stuff. And it's so excessive. To add some extra obstacles, yeah. For no reason. Yeah, like there was a lot of times through this movie I just couldn't follow along. I was like, all right. And then they were on, Elvis went on a date with this girl and she was like, blah, blah, blah. I have feelings. And Elvis is like, oh, wow, that's true, I guess. And then like starts having second thoughts. Yes. And then uh, wants to call the bet off. And then the girl finds out about the bet and she gets angry. But I want to point out that whole like, you know, it's going to happen. This is how this is always in the third act. She finds out about the bet and she's all upset. Yeah. This is the quickest resolution I've ever seen. She literally, there's like five minutes in the movie to go. She finds out about the bet and then immediately bumps into a character that helps 
point out that no, actually Elvis was there, but it wasn't as part of the bet. He let me talk about that for a minute. Sure. That scene is so freaking weird. Yeah. Let me tell you, the audience, what happens. Go ahead. There's a lady, Cookies, uh, not Cookie. There's another guy, Rick, who got a girl pregnant, and she like didn't tell him, and she has his baby, and blah blah blah, and they make up through a series of babysitting events funded by Elvis, mm-hmm. which is a terrible part of the movie that you can absolutely skip. Sure. But she, this lady with the baby is talking to Lily, the dancer. And she's like, yeah, Elvis is a good guy or whatever. And it was all a misunderstanding. And the girl's like, yeah. But the weird part about this fucking scene is that, number one, this lady leaves her baby unattended in a military, like, I don't know. They're, they're at, there's some place where there's a lot of people. Yeah. And she just walks out of this, like, dressing room and leaves her baby alone. And then Lily, the dancer, comes into the dressing room and is like looking at the baby and dealing with the baby the mom walks in and is talking and then the chick just picks up the baby which i want to talk about because if anyone if a stranger man or woman walked into my personal room and picked up my fucking baby i would go ballistic yeah i would be like what are you fucking doing but i think this i don't know if this is true or not but i think this might show a cultural nuance that was available to women that isn't anymore like it's a type of Mm. you know how people used to be like oh it's okay to go let your kids go run around because it's just other neighborhood kids we don't have to worry about anything you know whatever the heck that social consciousness about people preying on your children just wasn't as like i don't know anyway the point is I think that that scene's really interesting because this mom is like totally okay with this. And it's just like, yeah, pick up my baby, perfect stranger. And it's like, bro, did people do that? Like, did people in the late 50s, early 60s just let other strange women pick up their baby without asking? Like, I would be, I would be furious. (laughs) It's possible. But also this movie is not, uh... (laughs) very realistic and in general like this is this is a magical perfect technicolor world of cotton candy and everything where like yeah it's It's a real interesting way for the studios to paint the military Mm -hmm. you know like all the guys are really happy and they are all really excited and they just want to you know hang out and they're just regular guys and whatever and like oh man but you you see the end credits or the, the opening credits makes a point of saying this is fully funded and or like was approved by the u.s military so like you know how it is yeah so you're just uh you're getting it's so weird like i don't know i suppose now like we're a little more self-conscious about when the military is giving us propaganda and like not i'm not saying bad propaganda or good propaganda i just mean propaganda Mm -hmm. in general right they they send you stuff out like i'm just saying like uh, I feel like we've maybe gone a step forward in some ways from that and then maybe gone a step backwards because, like, it's just so weird how how fun and, like, mm-hmm. jolly they make the whole experience out to be. It's like a big old clubhouse with all your friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's bizarre. So uh, at the end of the movie, she finds out that it was all a misunderstanding and then her and Elvis and... I think everybody gets on stage and kisses. I think there's like three couples that we're supposed to be following along with this. Yes. All three of our, our dudes get all three of the girls. They're all paired off. And then Elvis yeah. looks to the camera. Yeah. 
because he's singing the last song of the movie is did you ever i think is it called or no yeah. or is it just called did you oh my god that that song is so weird also it is did you ever yeah it's such a weird freaking song sure they're singing it and then he just said he speaks the last line he just looks at the camera and says well did you ever and then we we end and i'm like what yeah it's so strange so weird let's use this as the the segue into talking about the music let's let's do the songs all right like up front twice. yes please there's 11 songs in this one. That's too many. I know. That's So far, that is the second yeah. most. There's still one more in uh, King Creole, but there's 11 in this one. It's like... Yeah. I think seven songs is a good amount of songs. Yes. Because a lot of these songs people don't know, they get cut short. Mm-hmm. Like, I just looked up the lyrics for Digi, and half the lyrics in Digi were, were not in the in the movie they they took the last half of the song yes which is really weird because it's the weird part of the song where they're like did you ever get one of those girls did you ever get one of those girls did you ever get one of those girls (laughs) it's like it's like oh it's so bizarre Mm -hmm. and it's just a weird way that people talked about women as objects like we still do that but like it's so weird to look back at old media and just see people who are like yes women those things over there did you ever buy one of them yeah did you ever you know it's like uh yeah anyway big big yikes yeah super big yikes uh, but we're watching all of this movie, so what do you expect? Mm-hmm. Uh, stra- if you think there's a big yikes today, man, strap in for our next fucking episode because I have some opinions. So what are the 11 songs besides Did You Ever? So it begins, there's a song called What's She Really Like, which I've already forgotten the context, whatever. There's the title track of G.I. Blues. Okay. Uh, then there's Doing the Best I Can, which I feel like that's what they're singing on stage. Because then the one right after that that's listed here is Blue Suede Shoes, which technically I should point out is not, of course, sung by Elvis, the character in the movie that is on the jukebox. Yes. And it's the only like yeah. pre-going into movies like classic Elvis song that's been included in any of his soundtracks. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Because it's not Tulsa McLean. It is this other guy named Elvis Presley who uh, just happens yes. to be singing within the same universe. It's just it's bizarre. Oh. Anyways strange then when they're on the way to frankfurt on the train he yep. he sings he grabs a guitar and starts singing frankfurt special yes uh and then yes go ahead then there's the song that they get to frankfurt i guess and he starts singing with the dolls there's like these little puppets oh no that's that's still that's a ways to go still oh that's a ways to go? okay okay right, there's right. there's shopping around then tonight is so right for love there's some yeah he's singing he's singing he's singing when he eventually goes on his like whirlwind date with Lily, they're going to all the spots. They're on the ferry, and then next thing you know, they hit a puppet show, and yeah. Uh, then the the guy running the show he puts on a gramophone to finish off the show, but the gramophone, uh oh, it goes all wonky. Doesn't work. Uh-oh. So Elvis is like, "Well, I'll step up and I'll sing the song. I know German." All of a sudden, uh, and so what's the name of that song? Wooden Heart. Yes. And there's also some German title and lyrics because he sings like in English, but then he's he throws in the German yes, lyrics yeah. that they were the gramophone was going off on. Did you like the puppet show scene? Um, no. Okay. I I thought it call, was call me a bit. Maybe I was just pummeled in submission. This I was won over by the scene just because I'm looking at Elvis doing this the whole time. And once again, we have to say like he commits to these things. He's committed. Yes, I will say he performed well. He looked like he was. He looked like he was like he signed the paycheck really hard for that one you know <laughs> you know how we've talked in the past when he was first getting started he had like a trouble with like eye contact and looking at his actors when he's talking to them yeah like this is the strongest and he's talking to a puppet he's doing the whole thing with a puppet but like he's like yeah. looking at this little doll and he's like really yeah 
like in the scene anyways yes make yeah. it that way you will like I, and also i will say um that i do like the song wouldn't hurt yeah it's a fun yeah. That's a song that's actually a popular Elvis. Well, it's not popular, but like when you start when you start sifting through the popular Elvis songs, you hit Wooden Heart a lot sooner than I think most people would be expecting to be. Sure. So, yeah. Uh, the date continues. They end up going on like this little sky lift and then they have a little duet, their big romantic duet of Pocket Full of Rainbows. Yeah. Gay. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh Big Boots? Oh, right, which is the lullaby he sings to the baby, because we'll get to the baby uh, so far. No, we don't have to get to the baby. I Listen, man, I spent like 20 minutes of this movie trying to ignore this baby, and I'm going to keep it That's that way. That's fair. I mean, we, we already gave the context of how it is. There's the, yeah. the Rick subplot. The, the point and, is that there's a baby, and the baby cries, and it 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 cries, and then Elvis sings it a little song, and then maybe it cries some fucking more. I don't know, because it's a dumb, stupid baby, and it shouldn't have been in this fucking movie. It might be like the, the most the, upset baby <sighs> I've ever seen in any movie. Yeah. Yeah, that baby was upset like that baby was upset i don't like, want to know there was what a they scene did. there was a scene where elvis like dropped some milk from the fridge and whatever and the baby is in that shot and you can tell that the baby did not like those things being it's a loud dropped. noise it's not fun yeah and like heck? you don't fucking scare the baby uh don't scare the baby hollywood i know you're fucking sick but christ leave the baby alone <laughs> God, and then the woman picks it up, and it's just like, God, stop touching the baby. <laughs> oh, we, do you want to hear some <laughs> some weird trivia on who? I don't know who they used for this baby, but originally, okay, the baby that was going to be used in the movie was going to be Jan Shepard's baby, and Jan Shepard was the actress who played Elvis's sister in King Creole, the movie he did just prior to this. Oh, interesting. But they didn't end up using her baby, and that's probably for the best because I wouldn't want my baby to be involved with this production. No, God. me neither. I was so sad. I'm really hoping, like, I'm really scared that we're gonna have to watch an Elvis movie with a pet in it sometime soon. Like, there was some really good, like, uh, hound dogs in Jailhouse Rock, which we didn't bring up. There was two of them on a leash that were owned by Elvis's character near the end of the movie. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. That's enough of the baby. Yeah, we've done, and then we finished with Did You Ever, which we already pointed out. So what's the best yeah. song out of here? <laughs> wooden Heart. Okay, you're going Wooden Heart? I, I would say, I'm going to go with Wooden Heart, because even though it's it's a bit campy sure. for an Elvis song, for sure, um, it's just, it, I think it's just like, that was pretty much the only song in this movie that I wasn't like, what the fuck is he singing about? Mm -hmm. Like I said, like, I... what are you talking about? Well... All these girls and all this stuff and all this rainbows and garbage. Sure. Like, come on, Elvis. And, like, this was the closest that I could get to, like, an actual Elvis song sure. is what it felt like for me. And it is my favorite sequence in the film, as to on top of being the favorite song. As my runner-up, I'll throw in yeah. Frankfurt Special, because I like the whole, like, whoa, whoa, as he's doing, like, the, the yeah. train noises. It's fun. I, it's whatever. Yeah. It's got pep to this it. Movie, this movie is, uh, it's lame. It's a lame movie. Sure. And I'm going to explain why. It's lame because, like... Elvis is way too happy for a guy who's, like, at war. Like, just way too happy, you know? And, like, everybody is treating their feelings of love, like, in such a weird... Ins it's all insincere. It's all so insincere. And it just makes me want to vomit when I watch it. And I don't think I'll ever watch this movie again, except maybe the first five minutes for when Elvis is a tank driver. That was the only good part. The, the movie stopped and started with Elvis driving the tank. Yes. There's a whole montage of good tank driving 
just during the credits while it's happening. You get there to is. see tanks just going over hills. Did you notice? I noticed this. That like midway through the opening credits, there's like just a shot of a tank and it like hits a bump and the dude that's like riding it, he's like poking out at the top. He like has almost like a whiplash and his his helmet just flies right off and they just kept that shot. I didn't see that. Oh my god. Yeah, it happens for like a split second. I rewound it and was like, oh snap! Like I guess they're just shooting all this B-roll footage and they're like, well, we can't. You know, these, these tanks are expensive. We only have so much we can use. So we're just going to yeah. keep that shot in, even though there's a freaking dude who like, and his helmet just flies right <laughs> off. And then he just like cuts to the next thing really quick. Holy crap. That's insane. So if you do watch the movie, watch just the opening credits and keep a lookout for that fun little thing that happens. Holy jeez. Yeah. So anyway, that's the Elvis movie. Um, That's all I have to say about this movie. Okay. Yeah. That's all we have to do. <laughs> Plot wise, we're done. I think we we've... Yeah. It's quicker than usual, but really, what is there to say? There's less substance yeah, than usual I, on this I, thing. I, yeah. I'm just over this movie. I've got a section. Even the sets look bad. I didn't oh, like sure. the sets either. Yeah. Everything is artificial. Big time. Well, wait. Oh, no. I, that's right. I should point out that the whole thing yeah. was like, yeah, the reason it looks so cheap and stuff is because, well, it was all shot on studio backlots. Like, this is at Paramount. So they just shot it all there. They they just use, like, the rear projection stuff. So, like, anytime you see... right. Elvis like in a location it's like just obviously not there he's just standing in front of like a big screen yeah just they were doing it even back then <laughs> I mean that's the way it was yeah. that's the way it was yeah and anytime you see a wide shot of them like and it looks like it's like actually shot there it's a body double it's some other dude not Elvis yeah uh so there you go that's just yeah how they put it together um are we talking about the actors and the rabbit hole that is your <laughs> talking about actors and the movies that they worked in and yes i've got it just uh, okay there's only one actress that i'll throw in like an extra little thing but for is it lily no oh but we'll start with lily because she's the most prominent other than okay Elvis. yeah i want to talk about her isn't she is what's lily's actress's name uh juliette prouse no i thought of a different girl okay but anyway keep going uh the same year that she was in this she was in she played claudine in a movie called can can with Frank Sinatra and Shirley MacLaine. Yep. So that was a fun little thing. So yeah, she's got a dance background, obviously. Her, yeah, wait, other than the um, the puppet show scene, her introductory dance sequence is also one of the strongest parts of the movie. The use of lighting. Yeah, yeah. The, oh gosh. Yeah. Her outfits were amazing. That dress. Her dance outfits. Wow. There was, yeah, there was one particular dress. I can't remember what it looks like off the top of my head now, but I remember the fabric that it was made of was a very difficult fabric to work with. Mm -hmm. And the way that they cut and styled that dress for it to work was really something else. Like, I'd, I've never seen a dress like that before. The one where it's like the, the skirt part of it is like strips. It's strips. It's long, long strips. And it's hard to make that kind of fabric mm -hmm. uh, do that because I believe that fabric is velour, which is a little bit stretchy. Right. So cutting things into long, heavy strips to use in dancing is really difficult to keep the form of the strips so actually it would have been quite a heavy dress for her to wear it would have been like the the bottoms the strips would have had to be reinforced so that they stayed flat right. and returned to their form so it would have been quite heavy and interesting to probably dance with but it was yeah really interesting costume design for that dancer mm -hmm. i was really pleasantly surprised and the whole thing they make it look effortless so good job on everyone yeah she did around. a good job and you can tell too like they knew they had 
I don't know if she's the best of the best or anything, but for sure they knew they had some person with talent mm-hmm. available to them because they just abused the shit out of that. Like yes. th- a lot of her dance routines take up long portions in the show. For sure. You know, I think a dance routine in a movie shouldn't be more than like a minute and a half tops, maybe two minutes. And hers seemed to go on for like three, four or five minutes. So. And they were like, although I will give them credit for doing that, I can also not give them credit because she can sing and she was dubbed over for her Pocket Full of Rainbows performance. So <gasps> really? even when they're like, we're really showing you off, they're not actually yeah. bringing her full potential. So that's just Hollywood. I mean, just need to say that. Yeah. It's a shame. Bastards. I know. So tell us about the other girl you want to get to. Yes. I just want to point out two bits I have under like my filmmaking appreciation notes before I forget about it. There's like two kind of fun transition. One that works better than the other. So when they're setting up for their show, Elvis and the Boys, uh, we see um, someone put a candle down on one of the tables mm-hmm. and it is not lit. And then it kind of like cross dissolves into like it being lit to show passage of time. And then it's nighttime and we set yes, up. Yes, that was fun. I did like that. But I feel like they, it could have done it better because like... It's not like a perfect match. Like you think they could have just set up the camera more on. But anyways, it is what it is. But a much better, more successful cut is when they get to the venue where Lily's going to perform for the first time, where they're going to meet her. Mm -hmm. There's like a little cardboard cutout on the outside of the building of her. And it's on like a little little string or something so that you can like Mm -hmm. spin it. And so Cookie's character, he spins it, and we zoom in on it spinning, and then it cuts to her spinning. Yeah, that was very stage. good. Yes, very well done on that. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, and the other thing was, I just already talked about the color in the intro dance number, which was like a, really like a hot pink and like a vibrant green, and it like alternating between those two. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Good stuff. I will say that. Yeah. On to Leticia Roman. Oh my God. Who is an Italian actress? She plays Tina. This is her debut. Okay. She went on to star three years later. This was her first starring role in Mario Bava's The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which is generally considered as one of the first Giallo films. Okay. So if you're not familiar with Gialli, it is an Italian genre that is like, they're like thrillers. The reason it's called Giallo is that's the, the Italian word for yellow. And there was these like pulpy, like thriller novels that all had yellow covers yep and so that's that, those were the inspiration for these movies in fact at the beginning of the girl who knew too much her character is reading like a giallo novel just to show like that's really interesting that's what we're doing this is what it is and it it spawned this entire like you look these up there are so many movies like if you're thinking the original suspiria is technically falls under that giallo really yes oh my gosh for anybody who hasn't seen the original suspiria please go check it out because it's so interesting mm-hmm. And um, for those of you who haven't seen the remake of Suspiria, I would actually also recommend it. Um, It goes on for a little bit too long in my personal opinion. But other than that, it's it's really fabulous. It should be the bar that we set for remakes. Yeah, absolutely. If you're going to do a remake of something as beloved, you want to like completely do your own spin and really take the material in a different direction while still keeping the core pieces. And it does it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. So, God, it's so depressing when we get to the part of the Elvis podcast where we start talking about movies that we actually like. <laughs> I think this is some of the funnest stuff that's part of the podcast is that we can actually recommend like all kinds of movies yeah. that aren't Elvis movies. <laughs> We're here for Elvis, but sometimes you want to watch Blood and Black Lace, which was so Mario Bava is the girl who knew too much is a black and white film, mm-hmm. but it still keeps that like core giallo feel. 
And then the next year, he cemented the genre with Blood and Black Lace, which is a full Technicolor. It takes place at a fashion house. Okay. And, like, the girls are being picked off one by one by a masked killer. Like, all the tropes are established. Wow. And so if you like, like, kind of whodunit thrillers, like, the atmosphere of Jalo films is really hard to explain, but it has a feel. Is it like, here's what I'm thinking. Yes. It's like noir. Very much, actually, yes. It's got to be. It's got to be like noir, yeah. But like with a fun European-Italian flavor. Yeah, if you're looking at Suspiria, Suspiria is kind of noir with cosmic horror. Yes. It's that style of you can't really see it, but you can feel it sure. type of thing. And they achieve that through um, lighting effects and cinematography and less with um, showing like action happening mm-hmm. or stuff like that it's a type of framing where like things don't look real like they're being missed where there shouldn't be missed and you know little yes. things like that that are kind of off-putting that elevate it from noir i guess would be to this specific genre yes because the name but it's it shares a thing with noir where like the name of the game is style over substance the plots themselves yeah. aren't really important like they're they're just vehicles to get the movie to the cinema they make as much sense and when there's the reveal at the end of who did it you're like okay sure whatever but yeah whatever you're in it for just the scene to scene like set pieces and the tension and stuff so yes that's so interesting highly recommend any of those movies they're great very cool and now we got to go back to okay we're going to talk about cookie uh real quick that actor yeah he's named robert ivers he sucks yeah, he's only got like 27 credits. He did some mostly TV <laughs> stuff. Uh, the only interesting thing that I want to point out is that he had a lead role in James Cagney's only directorial effort, huh. uh, which was a movie from 1957, film noir, as it were, uh, Shortcut to Hell. Yeah, okay. And he also has a supporting role in the seminal 1958's I Married a Monster from Outer Space. Oh. <laughs> yes, which is, you know, a classic of the nice. 50s B-movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Um, uh, who else are we going to do? Uh, James Douglas, who plays Rick. Okay. I this, The thing is, like, all of the, the, like, soldiers have, like, pet names or, like, weird names. We got Cookie. We got Tulsa. Yeah. We got Dynamite. And then there's just Rick, which is funny. Yeah. <laughs> but he is also just, like, the guy. Yeah. Like, I want to also point out, um, it was pretty synonymous. Like, uh, synonymous, I don't think is the right word I mean. But, like, a lot of guys had pet names. Sure. Yeah. Like a lot of them. Like my great grandfather was called Smokey. Mm, that's a good one. You know, they, they all had names for each other. Yeah. He used to, he was a, I'm going to get into it. Great grandfather, William, out in the sky there, fought in World War II. And um, he was in a platoon called the Devil's Claw. Ooh. And they were bazooka dudes. They were a bazooka team. And my grandfather used to be the guy that would hold the bazooka. And so he was like deaf in one ear and his face was always all messed up because at the time bazookas were not as good as they were today. Right. And uh, yeah, it was his job actually to go blow up tanks. That was his job with the bazooka was to go blow up tanks when he could. Damn. So, yeah. In another lifetime, my great grandfather could have killed Elvis Presley. (laughs) Think that one over. That's that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, okay uh james douglas who plays rick his main claim to fame is there was this classic soap opera called peyton place okay from 1964 to 1969 and he was one of the stars of it he appeared in 402 episodes wow that's a lot so yeah i mean that's a that's a that's good a steady paycheck he was he was on there for a while yeah that's a good run yeah uh who else we got the the sarge 
that we were being so disparaging about because his character sucks. Uh, Arch Johnson. Yeah. He's got 144 credits, you know, character actor, one of those guys. Yep. Uh, tons of TV. He has a role in 1973's The Sting with uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Hmm. So. Interesting. Yeah. My last person, which I guess I'll be, this will be the side character that I'm pointing out. Yeah. Oh, wait, no. Actually, I have two shoutouts. But the last character, so there's, there's Lily and Tina, but of course, Rick's girl the one who has the baby yeah which we kind of glossed it over but this was still a very interesting plot to have in a movie in 1960 it, it yeah it, it would have been interesting i i don't like the way they handled it they immediately get married and quote unquote fix the problem like they just get married and it's like oh it's all good yay but like it's still yeah interesting so the the gist here is that um the this couple has this baby out of wedlock which mm. was a no-no at the time yeah. and it still is apparently for some people but more so back in the 60s mm-hmm. if you had somebody out of wedlock you could you know you could get in a real tough spot um financially because a lot of benefits were not available to you um if you were in that position like you couldn't rely on your church you could you could sometimes not be able to rely on your parents for any kind of support and anything like that so if you had a kid out of wedlock you were pretty much pooched and the way they treat this i don't understand why she gets pregnant and she refuses to tell him about it and runs off and she just ignores him she just runs off yeah and he makes a point of saying oh i had the marriage license already i was about to marry you anyways and it's like yeah okay yeah yeah so i get the sense that like I wonder what happened. They, they. I think there's a subtext here that you and I probably are not understanding because it's possible. It's probably a uh, an archetype of the time, but like, mm, it's hard to say. I don't know what's going on with that. The movie doesn't. We should also. The movie doesn't spend enough time on this. This is the least developed no. subplot, even though it it well it doesn't even really factor much in. It's just a means to an end, really, which is not. This is not the way you should be handling this kind of thing yeah whatever and i it yeah it was interesting too i get the sense that they wrapped it up in the way they did because of how enmeshed they are with the military's money Mm. there's this thing that happens when you send american soldiers over to east germany and like i get the sense that uh they were trying to avoid that image by suggesting that like soldiers wanted to get married to the women they got pregnant (laughs) or whatever yeah like what a magical world they live in yeah like there's no women there's no women and children are ever badly affected by the men of the united states army because at the core of it they're upstanding fellows of society and they'll always do the right thing and on the flip side of this it is important to know that they don't address this in the film because obviously they don't know how to treat this delicate situation but absolutely all of his friends would have been like that's not your kid there's no way that you can know that that's your kid because at the time i don't think they Mm. really had access to testing Mm -hmm. right and if they had find if they had found out that a woman unmarried woman got pregnant by a soldier she would have been absolutely ostracized she would have been like they would have painted her as a harlot and been like yeah he he's not going to take care of your kid because that could be anyone's kid you had sex out of wedlock so this could be anyone's bastard child and you're just trying to pin it on him and blah 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 you know that's the rhetoric that would have been used to suppress um women's rights back in the day so it, it was really interesting to see how the media was really like so we see it now because we know these things now but like back in the day you know the military doing stuff like this like 
it was just so blatant. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was talking about this too with Jailhouse Rock that there was some weird like atmosphere about like sexuality that seemed at the time so blatant and I couldn't understand why filmmakers would portray things that way and I think I've actually discovered it's not that they're portraying events of the past in that way it's that there were ways about talking about certain groups of people that were not outright said and now that they're outright said in our time, it's so easy for us to go and look back on media and say, this is what they were talking about. It's right. so obvious. But it's because that was the way that people spoke about anyone who was different, anyone who was marginalized, anyone who was on the outskirts of society. So that kind of um, homosexual erotica that we see present in Jailhouse Rock is there not as an implementation, but as a consequence of how we have used rhetoric about people outside the social um, norms, which Mm -hmm. would have been convicts. So the same thing kind of happens here, almost to the same effect, where you have this situation where now we can be really like painfully aware of how obvious it is the way things would have actually gone and it's only by looking back at this media and seeing how uh, media controlled and redirected their personal ideas about where people belonged in society we can only do that now because we have a full concept of how that happened and why it happened So it looks foreign and different to us in a way that seems outrageously obvious when at the time it would not have been. It would have been considered normal to treat those events in such a way. You don't talk about women like that, right? That was, I remember that was a big thing when I was a kid even. You don't talk about women like that. Yeah. So if you have women in films, and we talk about too about in the Elvis film, the the divorcee subplot in... um, Loving You, yeah. Loving You, right? About how they talk about women's roles in marriage. And there's a concept here where you don't besmirch the good honor of good women and you let the sleeping giant lie for the sake of making the film have a happy ending and have everything wrapped up in a neat little bow. Yeah, that's my tangent. Nice. It's interesting. It is. So, so many yeah, weird, there's so many branches you can take with all these things. Yeah. We could make these things two hours long and we'd probably have plenty of we room, really but could. like there's so much. Yeah. We'll talk about more in Flaming Star because that is going to be, gosh, I just. that I If I took over a bunch of this episode, I'm going to let Morgan just have at it on Flaming Star. Yeah. It, you guys, we're going to unpack some shit with Flaming Star. But as for this movie, as for GI Blues, I'm going to give this. Uh, two thumbs way, way down. I did not like this movie and I don't ever want to watch it again. And I'm only watching it because I'm committed to watching all 31 Elvis movies. Exactly. We do it so you don't have to. (laughs) Yeah, we do it so you know what you're getting into before you get into it. Okay, we'll figure it all out for you. And um, I don't know, do you have anything else to say or shall we wrap up for today, do you think? Uh, I got two more shout outs. Okay. Because that these ones, yeah, the the ones I had listed were pretty much all the actual. Oh wait, no, we actually didn't even get to her. We because we went off on the tangent. Sorry. Right. Uh. So Marla is the lady who, who has the baby, and she's played by an actress named Sigrid Mayer. Uh. This is her only film. This is her only credit. Interesting. Just this and nothing else. And I don't think she was bad or anything. I was, I don't know the context. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh. And Maybe then she had a baby. <laughs> oh. 
this was all like <laughs> that's why she was so good she this was like method acting yeah <laughs> uh but the the guy who runs the puppet show which is once again my favorite scene right uh ludwig stossel he was like this you know long-standing actor guy 133 credits this was his last film but he made a few tv appearances after the fact and he's delightful you know yeah. he's just playing himself so like in germany he definitely like people would have been like oh it's it's him it's like a cameo it's like a fun thing right oh that's interesting uh and then the redhead who we go back to the beginning who like the sarge picks as his date or whatever yeah. she's uncredited but this was a young brit eckland went on to uh have a really interesting career especially in the 70s Ooh. she's in an agatha christie adaptation called endless night from 1972 Mm-hmm. She's in the original The Wicker Man in 1973, and she plays uh, the Bond girl in The Man with the Golden Gun in 1974. Oh, interesting. So that's like a really nice run. Yeah. And she's great. So Fabulous. I'm glad she went on to do much better things than just being an yeah. uncredited redhead <laughs> in a freaking G.I. Blues. Ugh. Yeah, really bad. You gotta start somewhere. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to end this episode today by thanking everybody who came out to listen to us talk about this nonsense for an hour. Mm -hmm, I don't know mm -hmm. why you're doing it. I'm assuming that you're doing it because you love us. And for that, what can I say? But I love you too. Okay. And before you get to the the closing, (laughs) watch this. I'm not going to forget. We didn't talk about the alternate titles for GI Blues. Oh. Oh, right, right, so right. we don't have to do it next time. We're going to do it right now. Uh, so okay. the main alternate title for it is Cafe Europa, which is the name of the venue that Lily dances at. And it's actually what the movie was called in Europe, in Germany and Italy when it was released. I see. And apparently also in like the early drafts of it, it was going to be called Christmas in Berlin. Uh, that's bizarre. Yeah. There you go. We're done. That's, we did it. That's bad. Glad that it's not. All right, folks. That's it for our show today. Uh, oh, no. Crap. We didn't talk about the no, director not- or the cinematographer. Oh, my God. Okay, Matt. All right. Sorry, we can do go. it. I'm it's okay. Take a little nap. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, you're you're just <sighs> you rest your eyes, get ready for Flaming Star. Anyways, the director was a guy called so and so. No, Norman Torog, and this is important because he went on to do nine Elvis films. Oh, really? Yeah, we got to get used to this guy. That's a shame. Because he apparently they because I know. this movie sucks. Well, that's why <laughs> this was this was such a success at the box office, and Flaming Star was not. That they're like, well, then we got to do more GI Blues and less Flaming Stars. And I agree with doing less Flaming Stars, but not because, like, the drama was bad. It's just the story was bad. But anyways. Yeah, the story was bad, too. But the story was also bad in this one. But they're like, well, no, we got to keep it light and fluffy and, you know. Yeah, yeah. Unrealistic. Uh, but Norman Torog directed this. And he is, uh, once again, we get a director who's involved with, who makes an Elvis movie that technically had some uncredited work on Wizard of Oz. Oh. This is the second time this has happened. It's very strange. bizarre. Apparently there was like five or six different directors who had their hands in Wizard of Oz at one point, but only one was credited because he actually did the majority of the work. Huh. Um, Other notable things that he did, he directed a movie in 1965 with one of my favorites, Vincent Price, called Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. (laughs) Okay. So if you're not familiar, there was a company called AIP, American International Pictures, and they put out these beach party movies. Oh. This was a whole genre in the 60s, the beach party movies. It was just a bunch of teens on the beach having fun. They're really goofy. And this was like part of that series. This is when they started dipping into like even more absurdity. It's a beach party movie, but it's also kind of like a James Bond pastiche. And Vincent Price plays the titular Dr. Goldfoot. And I can't remember the plot because it's ridiculous, but it's just, it's fun times. It's like Austin Powers That's really bizarre. was like aping yeah. off of this more than anything. Uh, cinematographer is Royal Griggs. He did the cinematography on 1953's Shane, the Western. We got White Christmas, 1954, mm-hmm. of The Ten Commandments, 1955. 
Ah. Uh, 56, Can sorry. you imagine having a name like Royal? Loyal. Did I say Royal? His name's... Well, I don't know, but Loyal isn't much better, though. No, like, it's can not. Can you imagine naming his, your kid Loyal? Loyal Griggs. I just, it doesn't, it's so, it doesn't that fit. That is so bizarre. I've never heard of somebody naming their child Loyal. Yeah. Uh, and then the writers, last part here, uh, Edmund Boulogne and Henry Garson. Uh, Edmund Boulogne. <laughs> could you imagine <laughs> if it had been named Loyal Boulogne? <laughs> Loyal Boulogne? Now that's... <laughs> My first, my first okay. screenplay. That's that's the name I'm going to choose for a character, Loyal Boulogne. Loyal Boulogne. But Edmund Boulogne was the co-writer on uh, 1947's Road to Rio, mm. uh, which was part of the Road Pictures that Bob Hope and Bing Crosby did. Uh, and then Henry Garson did mostly TV writing. But these same writers and the director Norman Turog, the f- two films they did prior to GI Blues were Jerry Lewis comedies. Yeah. 1959's uh, Don't Give Up the Ship and 1960's Visit to a Small Planet. So yeah, that's like. This was the mode they were doing, so they brought that energy to Elvis, and apparently people wanted this and they liked it. So that's where we. God, that's we just stand. that's too bad. Yeah, because it sucks. <laughs> and yeah, that's that's it. We've done it. I've officially exhausted right. everything about this movie. Yes. All right. Well, that's it. Good night. Bye. Well, we know we got to do our sign off. Uh, right. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you very, you very much. much.